He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. Well, we're back. We're live. Um, this is the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast with uh, Dr. Philip Ovedia, and we've got a special guest this week. They're all special. They're all really interesting to me. Um, but Phil, when you told me uh, that Sean O'Meara was coming on, you led me to believe this was going to be a rip-roaring conversation. So if you don't mind, uh, give us the 411 here. Yeah, definitely. Great to be back again, Jack. And, uh, you know, most uh, weeks you ask me, you know, why do you, why do you bring this guest on? Um, this week you should be asking me what the hell took you so long to get this guest on? Because uh, uh, Dr. Sean O'Meara and I have had uh, a number of great conversations. And uh, Sean is truly one of those outside the box uh, physician thinkers. Uh, and, you know, the information that uh, we've gone back and forth on the things that I've learned from him um, really brings a, a unique uh, angle to the metabolic health picture that we've been unraveling, you know, over the past uh, 50 plus episodes here on the podcast. So really excited to uh, welcome Sean on. And uh, Sean, why don't you just uh, introduce yourself briefly to our audience? Sure. So uh, uh, my name is uh, Sean O'Meara. I'm by training, I'm an emergency medicine physician, but uh, uh, I retooled myself, uh, having had uh, a number of medical conditions and uh, interaction with a patient that challenged me to change my diet uh, to now being a health and performance optimizing physician based on that experience, just changing my diet it had so much impact uh, for me personally, that it spilled over into my professional life. And I decided I had to become a researcher, looking into how a a dietary, simple dietary change could could have had such a profound ef effect on my own life. So um, it brings me to today being here, and I'm I'm super excited. I've followed your work now for a few years, and you were one of the first physicians that I, I met through social media that uh, really got uh, was was speaking the same um, truths that uh, that I had come to realize about diet and uh, the need to uh, have lifestyle changes as really an effective part of people's uh, approach to their, to their lives and their own uh, health conditions. And it, it hasn't been a particularly uh, popular viewpoint. Um, I think you'd agree that uh, we're still uh, out there, although we see a number of our colleagues coming on board, uh, but the, the whole, you know, uh, fact that it took, took me basically uh, 15, 15 or so years to realize this really leaves me with trepidation about the average person. If a physician could be so misinformed about the significance of diet and lifestyle on the human condition, I'm really terrified at how the rest of our population is, is going to be able to make decisions about and and have the knowledge necessary to really be um, that live the healthy lives that 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 we're intended to live in our species. So super excited to join forces with you today, 
and uh, continue on in this particular space to help people understand um, through social media, the internet, uh, podcasting, um, the the modern day telecommunications that we're able to reach as many people as possible and as, as quickly as possible with this message of, that really can dramatically change the lives of people. Okay. I, I love good stories. And there's a story in there that is just begging to be heard. You said you had your own health condition and you were challenged by a patient. Um, tell us that story. Sure, sure. So it was actually, you know, working in, in the hospital, uh, we had a little wellness center and you'd see, you'd see all the doctors in there working away and, and uh, I would be in there, you know, slaving away about an hour and a half hour uh, working out. And, you'd see, and I saw the, uh, I always laughed at uh, the, the uh, general surgeon who was would do, um, you know, bypass surgeries. He was getting overweight and he would be in there working out like crazy, trying to get control himself. But there'd be this one guy who would come in and blast in. He'd be only there for like five, 10 minutes and he'd be leaving. I used to say, God, this guy gets paged out. Well, I don't know why he shows up to work out. Well, this guy I ended up being uh, uh, somebody that just bought a membership in this hospital wellness center. And uh, huh. so I, I was I met him one day and, and we, we was chatting inside the wellness center and uh, he 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 just was so incredibly healthy and fit. And and I I had all these medical conditions. I had um, Barrett's esophagus. So I had this precancerous lesions in my esophagus. I was being uh, I'd have an EGD, a scope, you know, a garden hose down my mouth every three months. So often filth it. I wouldn't even do sedation. I'd be wide awake. They'd shove that EGD down down my throat and was done. They'd just pull it out. I'd get off the table and walk out because I hadn't any sedation. I could go back and see patients round, do whatever I had to. And so uh, I just got, you know, I was so efficient with my time. But, uh, yeah, so I had high blood pressure, pre-diabetic. Uh, I had uh, – uh, I was overweight. I had eczema all over my body, restless leg syndrome. So I'd kick my my uh, my legs all night long, obstructive sleep apnea. So I'd snore night, all night long, keep my wife awake, either kicking or snoring. And uh, I had enlarged prostate and um, just I was a mess. And so uh, I heard about at that time, this this guy said that uh, I asked him, why are you so healthy? What, what, do, you, what do you do that keeps you so healthy? He goes, well, I'm paleo. And I never heard that term before. So I said, well, what's paleo? So he told me about it. And that was it. I went off and, you know, read a little bit about it online. And and uh, uh, but nobody told me, you know, that if you do these things, clear up your diet, that it's going to have any impact on your your medical condition. So I do I do it. And I just remember one day standing in my bathroom, uh, urinating, and it no longer was dribbling out of me, like it would just kind of dribble and fall out of me. There was no stream. There was no sense of masculinity. It would just kind of leak out. And here I am standing up this one day and it's shooting out of me. It sounds like Niagara Falls, like it used to when I was a teenager. And I recollected I was no longer waking up at night. And uh, so you might think that would be really happy about all this, but no, the, the epiphany that arrived at me was brought out fury, fury that I had gone through medical school and never learned 
what really changed all of these medical conditions, they all got better or went completely away, was a dietary lifestyle change. And that was never once discussed. All the conditions I had were brought about paradigms of treatment that would be mitigated, you know, symptoms symptomatically with medications. I had bags of medicine and, and I, I was just getting worse, like all our patients. And so I decided uh, this, this would be little, uh, quite a bit different in the, in the surgical arts where you can, you can actually do something definitively. Um, but, you know, for those of us who are more like fleas, <laughs> internal medicine doctors, emergency medicine doctors, we just give medicines. And so um, I, I realized that in that moment um, that if, you know, if a diet lifestyle change could have that much of an impact on me, then I needed to really, truly research how in the world that was possible because I just did not have my medical training profession did not prepare me to, to understand the changes that took place in me. So that was a kind of a long story. But, you know, it's a story that could be anybody's who's listening today. Anybody who's out there listening that has, you know, chronic disease, a lot of these conditions, um, it could it could be happened to you. And, and so I became a researcher. And I purposed to research the reversal of chronic disease. All of the conditions that I, I had been suffering from were chronic diseases. And I researched, what do you have to do to get rid of chronic disease? What are the best things to follow and track? And that's what led me to the, to the research that I, I got involved in, the research practice in Minneapolis. I moved from Washington, D.C., where I've been practicing in a large emergency medicine uh, department out east. And I joined a research practice with another uh, physician, MD, PhD, Dr. Zeng, who introduced me to the, for the first time to the interesting biomarker of visceral fat. So that kind of led me into becoming a researcher and uh, studying what you got to do to get rid of chronic disease and what are the best things to follow. So to this day, it's, I still believe Dr. Zeng is right. It's the visceral fat. I have not found anything else more effective at eradicating chronic disease from the human body and human frame than this one biomarker visceral fat. So I, I do whatever I can to try to promote awareness about it and uh, uh, introduce it to other physicians so that they could begin uh, to utilize this really effective, powerful biomarker uh, to, to help, help their patients. All right. I, I want to get into the visceral fat and the biomarkers of, before we do that, though, very briefly describe the um, the type and amount of education you had to go through to become an emergency medicine doctor. Uh, and obviously, the reason I'm asking that is because your your anger at finding out you were not educated. Yeah. Talk, you know, sixty yeah. seconds. Yeah, I'll just, just get high level. So. Uh, yeah, four years of college and then uh, four years of, of uh, medical school. Um, and then I did four years of an emergency medicine residency program. So that's uh, four years past the uh, M MD degree. So it uh, wasn't as long of a residency program as what uh, Dr. Vedia went through, but um, it was all, it was pretty long, four years additional training. So quite a bit of training um, looking at taking care of humans with all matters of disease and trauma as, as in addition to disease. 
And uh, so I, it was quite a bit of uh, formal education, medical education uh, that, that I had been provided, uh, none of which prepared me uh, for really effective lifestyle uh, management and understanding what you got to do to really get somebody healthy. Like I've learned now as a health, uh, health and performance optimizing physician, uh, medical researcher. Yeah. And isn't it amazing that, you know, we, we've now had all sorts of, uh, you know, physi- we've had physicians from all sorts of specialties on this uh, show now. We've had the family medicine doctors. Uh, we've had the cardiologists. Um, we've had, uh, you know, you're, you're an emergency room doctor. Uh, we, we've had a psychiatrist on. We, we've talked to all sorts of medical professionals. And it's amazing how consistently we hear that in all of this training, you know, five, 10, 15 uh, years of training that we all go through, and we don't learn about keeping people healthy. Um, and we get out into our practices and we spend all our time taking care of sick people, trying to fix sick people, and we don't think about keeping them healthy. And, you know, you, I, so many others, we have this same story that, you know, it started with fixing ourselves, with fixing our uh, own health, and then coming to that realization that exactly what you said earlier, you know, if we can't figure this out as physicians, what hope do, you know, the non-physicians have uh, in being able to uh, figure this out and uh, certainly applaud, um, you know, not only what you did uh, in kind of changing practice styles, changing some of your management, but then taking that extra step to go into the research and figure out why this is, um, is uh, really uh, fascinating. So uh, before we get to the visceral fat part of it, just talk a little bit about that, uh, that mindset switch that you had mm-hmm. to undergo, that I had to undergo, that so many of us have undergone as to, oh my God, most of what we learned is either wrong and or useless, and we got to find a different way. Yeah, you know, there's there's another layer to it, and part of that mindset switch that I I don't really talk too much about, and uh, I don't think I've ever mentioned it in another podcast. So I'll bring it up in on, in your show, and that was um, while I was active duty in the military, I took I was selected to be a physician to the to the uh, to the president in the United States and the vice president and the secretary of state. So very key government officials. And uh, so uh, I would have to travel with uh, the vice president or former presidents on, on occasions, just be their doctor or medical team, lead the medical team um, with them. And it was uh, it, it really was always fascinating. We had this capability. We could take care of, you know, their shot, you know, trauma, you know, heart attack, a stroke. But what it came to, you know, preventive care, just terrible. I mean, just they get the same crap that the rest of the country does. So if you're listening today and think that, no, it's at the top. No, it ain't. It's not at the top. The most, you know, the senior executive service have no idea anymore about how to be healthy than everybody else. And then, you know, after taking care of you know, uh, Dick Cheney, Bill Clinton, George Bush, Colin Powell, Condoleezza Rice. I set up a company with some other White House doctors to provide medical care, essentially what we did for the White House. We did for 52 
billionaires and royal families all over the world. And once again, <laughs> these are the wealthiest people in the world. Absolute crap. They eat crap. They live crappy. They have nice cars and boats, but they, they don't have any more clue about being healthy than the average people. So anyway, this should make your audience feel good. This isn't being closed held. You know, this isn't, you know, the wealthy, the, the, the haves over the have nots. Nope. There, there are really very few people have got this figured out and probably ones at the bottom have, have it figured out better than the ones at the top. So my mind shift uh, that I had to go through uh, went through all those formal layers and exposure to the affluent kind of conventional system that I really had a good view on. And uh, and then I it was just awe of what happened to me that drove me into to research uh, to understand this better because I wanted to make sure that it wasn't an N of one, you know, that this wasn't just some fluky experience in, in Sean O'Meara that isn't going to happen to everybody else. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the case is, no, it's not. If you make the right changes, you start living healthy, you start eating healthy, you will, you can expect to have reversal chronic disease. And the other really exciting thing that I found, uh, Phil, that is really interesting is that I'm sorry, I've got to stop you right there. I've got to stop you, Sean. You just said, I, I mean, we could literally drop the mic and walk away other than we haven't told the what. You just said, if you will eat right, I, you, I don't remember your exact words, you will experience reversal of chronic disease. It wasn't just Sean O'Meara it happened to. You've got the science now. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we studied. Didn't mean, didn't mean to interrupt, but, but that, no, no. we can't just no, but go that skate very past that. Point. Jack, yeah, you you know your audience needs to pick up on that. It's it's real. We studied you know five thousand people. We scanned them and we measured their chronic disease, and we watched the impact of lifestyle changes on that biomarker visceral fat. And yet you can kind of expect like you you know that it 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 is noteworthy. You know that chronic disease either gets better or went completely away in in all these people. But what really got me surprised and got me thinking and gives me hope that this is the future and it's going to catch on was not only was the absent that the disease left the body and fled, but to a person in every measurement, they performed better. Mm. So basically, let me put it this way. They lived better. Everything they did then got better. So it's not just the fact that disease is abated and reversed, but you actually improve the quality of life in these people. They become stronger, faster, smarter, better performing, better at every task that they, they did that we measured and proved. So um, I have great hope that the body of knowledge that is available that once it's packaged up in a form that can be consumed uh, and distributed through probably companies will be embraced by corporate America because they'll be able to reduce their highest, their second highest operating cost behind salaries and wages are employee expenses for healthcare. Wow. They'll be able to reduce that. And then secondly, there'll be an increase 
employee productivity. So now you're talking about- Oh, now there you go. There's there's another mic drop moment. (laughs) Phil, there's your- there's your hook right there, buddy. Oh my lord! Exactly. They're not just going to be healthier and and cut your in your uh, your healthcare costs. They're actually going to be more productive, and that's not just marketing BS. That's we've got the science to back it up. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, the 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 three of us on this call, you know, on this podcast, can all attest to that in our personal lives, and you know, certainly we have seen it uh, with all of the patients that we work with. Uh, you know, so it really isn't, um, you know, something to be debated. It isn't something that we, you know, need more proof of. Um, we know that if you just change what you're eating and you change a few habits about your lifestyle, uh, you're going to get these great improvements. And, and as Sean said, it's not just fixing diseases, it's it's really improving your day-to-day life. And that's what's so exciting. Uh, but but the work that you know you're doing now to have a way to measure that, uh, because that's yeah. always, you know, one of the challenges. People want to know how do I know if this is getting better? Uh, and, you know, we talk about blood work and we talk about this and that. Uh, but you're really the first one that I heard talking about visceral fat. And uh, you're still largely the only one talking about visceral fat. Uh, so let's get into that a little bit. First, let's just start with, you know, what is visceral fat uh, and why is it so important to uh, all of these aspects of our health and performance? Yeah, so. Um, first of all, for the audience, I just want to entice them a little bit to uh, to go to Google and just don't limit your your knowledge of visceral fat to what you hear uh, from me or on uh, on the show or other shows. You really should develop a fascination for it because uh, of its capacity for once eliminated, you know, having uh, such a powerful positive influence and effect on your health, uh, your performance, and the quality of your life. So, visceral fat, in short, is a is a collection of highly inflammatory uh, tissue that's stored deep within your abdominal cavity. We call it visceral fat because it surrounds the viscera, the inner organs within the the human body. And so the uh, inflammatory nature of this substance is that they release these inflammatory molecules and uh, they get uh, distributed throughout the body and wreak havoc and cause inflammation throughout the body and basically a disease. But, you know, there are other aspects to it. We only know what we bother to look at and study. But recently there was a, a very interesting uh, study that came out in June of this year that showed the mechanism of cancer where visceral fat releases a particularly a problematic protein uh, called Franklin that gets distributed throughout the body. And what it does is it attracts uh, the first line and most important line of cancer fighting, these NK killer T cells, it attracts them back into the viscera fat, visceral fat and traps them. So basically sequesters them in the manner that maybe a spleen might sequester erythrocytes. Uh, the visceral fat attracts these NK killer T cells within visceral fat and then renders them ineffective at fighting cancer. So now they're no longer out in the periphery fighting off cancer. And of course, cancer 
uh, is always occurring in the body. And it's but for the action of these NK killer T cells in our body's immunity that we would otherwise have active cancer and succumb from it. So to the extent you're just, your, your immune system works effectively, you can fight off this cancer. But here's visceral fats mechanism. And we've seen the strong association for you know, decades now between obesity and uh, cancer. And now we, we have a greater awareness of the exact mechanism by which uh, visceral fat is causing cancer. So that, that, that is you know, one influence of cancer, but visceral fats, inflammatory cytokines and other inflammatory molecules, they release it go and cause uh, havoc throughout all tissues. And, uh, and so as you reduce the uh, quantity of visceral fat, but there's another important factor, the exposure. So lots exposure. of people know that visceral fat is bad, but the amount of time you're exposed to it is oh, okay. critically important. So if we just dropped a bunch of visceral fat inside a patient, or let's be a little bit more practical, they quickly acquire a lot of visceral fat from a diet that's completely filled with processed foods, sedentary lifestyle, poor sleep, uh, alcohol abuse, and stress. So you bring all the big factors and cause visceral fat, they'll accumulate it in a very short period of time. And guess what? Not much disease, not much disease. But over a period of time, as their body is exposed to that quantity of visceral fat, the disease begins to manifest in their body. So what that means to people is you can have a small amount of visceral fat for a very long period of time, and you will have disease as a consequence of visceral fat. Or you can have a very large amount for a very short period of time and not, not have much disease. So it's important to know how much disease you have and how you are over a period of time, the dynamic nature of visceral fat is important to follow. So thus, my interest in this particular substance as a biomarker to be aware of and to introduce it to other providers so that they can understand that this is something we have to pay attention. And I'll go on to say that I recognize that there's a limitation, you know, on the part of patients, um, you, you know, be able to afford uh, an effective uh, analysis of visceral fat, which really, in my opinion, requires either an MRI or CT. Um, I don't think a DEXA scan is a good scan because it doesn't allow you to visualize that visceral fat. It just gives you a number. And so an MRI or CT allows you to take a look at that. And why that's important, Phil, is in my opinion, for a patient to be able to act on uh, information necessary to change their lifestyle, they have to be able to process that information. And so, you know, if you give them lab reports, there's not a lot of processing that they can do. They have to look at numbers and it basically comes through us as physicians to interpret it. So nobody really changes their life over lab reports. But visceral fat is different because you can actually take a look at it and stare at the enemy inside of you. And it seems to evoke a more primal response and a more fundamental response on the part of, of uh, patients who see it uh, to change their lifestyles. So I've seen this over and over again. I'm not, I've never seen anything else as effective at changing the lifestyle. In fact, I've shared repetitively on other uh, podcasts that I had one patient even go so far as to pass out in front of me, syncopized on a standing position, fell and hit the ground 
after he saw how much visceral fat was inside of him, previously thinking he was a healthy guy, and he realized he wasn't, and the guy turned green, then he turned gray, and then he turned white, ischemic white, and I knew impending syncope was standing in front of me, but I could not get to the three feet I needed to fast enough to catch him before he fell and hit the ground. So visceral fat really is a powerful market to take a look at, and There was another recent study out in this past year that showed doctors who take the time to go through, and you probably do this, uh, CT scans and radiology images with their patient explaining things have better, more meaningful results with that patient than those of us who simply read the report. So leveraging that to visceral fat, you want to walk a patient through looking at that collection of highly inflammatory substances within their body and uh, and then track it over a period of time and, and show them, guarantee, <laughs> you can guarantee that if they eliminate this visceral fat, that they'll improve their existing conditions and along with it, their body. So when the other changes that happens are faces. So I, I got so accustomed to looking at visceral fat in people and their faces before that I, I got pretty good at reading how much visceral fat was present in somebody uh, just by looking at their face. I can see the inflammation in their face. And so now I walk down the Mall of America, which is where I live in Minneapolis, and I do visceral fat assessments. And everybody walking by me, I can do a visceral fat assessment. And I think this is interesting because the future probably will be that we will be able to identify external changes in the body that will give us an indication of visceral fat, obviating the need to do expensive scans. But uh, And that's what our ancestors would have done for years, right? We, we would have had the medicine man and the medicine woman that would have caught us at the watering hole and said, Jack, Phil, you got to talk to me. I'm seeing some bad change. Or good job, Jack, liking what I'm seeing, you know, your changes this way. So that body of knowledge that previously was part of our living for, you know, 4 million years or so, however long Homo sapiens has been around, has been lost because we've had this convergence and uh, transference, I should say, of uh, modern technology. And, you know, since we started tracking labs, just numbers, you know, look what's happened to humans. You know, we basically mm. developed obesity and diabetes. We got more, more disease, more chronic disease than any point in the existence of humanity. And it occurred to me just this week that I think we're looking at our laboratory studies uh, from a um, quantifiable standpoint. We look at them numerically. And what we're missing is the quality of that number. So, for instance, TSHs, LDLs, one number is not going to apply to everybody else. The quality either of that LDL or the quality of the cell receptor is not being addressed in these lab studies. So I think they're almost a fool's errand. They work to identify disease, and to that extent, they have some utility. But to the extent that we might otherwise use lab reports to try to optimize humans, it's not going to, because it's only half the story. So you got to look at the quality of what's being measured 
as well as the quality of the environment in which that substance is. And they're very different. Expand on that. What what do you mean the quality of the environment? Yeah. So let's let's talk about uh, uh, insulin. So people are kind of talking about uh, what is your fasting insulin level? Right. Well, you know, your fasting insulin level, uh, your number, what it is at a particular time in the human body. Uh, let's say somebody has a fasting insulin level of three. Um, if I try to apply that to fill um, my insulin receptors, on my cell are different than Phil's. Where's that in a discussion? It's not. You got these ranges where it's normal and we're applying to everybody. So I, I never hear this discussed. I just hear, you know, it's just this application of a number, you know, all our lab values. And nobody's really saying every number that I've ever looked at has another half of the story. What, okay. what does it mean within the tissue? And, it, and that's a big part of the story because all everybody's tissue is very different. How they're going to respond to or be influenced by or otherwise has some sort of biological interaction with whatever it is we're going to measure. So what I, I want, I want to ma- is. I want to make sure I, I I'm understand what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I had a friend years ago who was diagnosed with uh, Hashimoto's. And she she spent a lot of time trying to get straightened out, finally found a physician who seemed to understand what was really going on. And she reported back to me that the way that thyroid hormone is is typically measured, um, it it wasn't just thyroid itself. It was free, free T3 and free T4 and... TSA, I don't know what all it was. Um, those had to be measured, first of all, in order to get a, an accurate reading on the function of the thyroid. But beyond that, you had to find out what the baseline for that particular person was so that these numbers that they're looking at in the lab report can be put into the context of what is normal or healthy whatever normal is for that particular person. I think that's an illustration of what you just said about the environment. Did I get that right? Well, yeah, baseline baseline is a baseline number, but um, it's just looking at a a quantity of a substance. There's not a discussion about the um, health of um, of the tissues that that thyroid hormone will act on or thyroid stimulating hormone there's so many different molecules that um, are involved in the in the thyroid functioning it's a fairly complex endocrine system but we just look at numbers baseline changes down the road nobody's measuring the changes on this the receptors you know where where those hormones okay how do you quantify that i got you You how do you address the quality of the, the hormone of the actual so, physical and chemical environment that the, that yeah. the hormone being measured exists in within. Yeah. I, I mean, it. if I you take uh, Phil's TSH uh, and, and you put it into, into me hit the amount of TSH, how it works on, on his tissues uh, is going to be very different than my own, but we just look at these numbers in this 
kind of very flat um, one dimensional aspect. And so the, okay. the necessity to look at the human body and looking at what's what I call the not I call, but I I'm fond of using the metrics that that are applied by researchers uh, looking at um, uh, markers of research called, you know, using the factors of signal to noise. So mm-hmm. it, it's important to under, understand that. And signal is what really matters. Noise is what's distraction. So we we have the capacity to stop and pause and say, how much signal is present within this, whatever we're looking at and how much is noise. So cholesterol, you know, is fraught with a lot of noise. I mean, it's just not something that is black and white and really clear and pure signal. Visceral fat of everything that you could look at in the body has, in my opinion, the highest degree of signal relative to noise. So it's why anecdotally, in my, my experience and in studies I look at, that nothing is as effective for eradicating disease and, and changing people and improving them as much as, as visceral fat. And so, um, you know, the other day I was reviewing a study that actually showed that it was uh, the highest amount of causality for mortality uh, between visceral fat uh, subcutaneous fat and liver fat was was uh, visceral fat, and I I can't think I I want to. There's a radiologist kind of trying to get me to e- explain to him show him studies why visceral fat is even worth worth tracking. Um, I I want to ask him well, what else do you track? You're a radiologist. You read things all day long. What else is more important for the patient's health that you think needs to be read? more than visceral fat. So part of no, the problem I, is nobody I, trains radiologists or yeah. doctors on visceral no, fat. No, that's exactly it. You know, and the the you know, the sort of blind spots that we have because, you know, we all see it. You know, every every scan you get, you know, it's there. It's just that no one's looking at it. And, uh, you know, I, I admit, uh, you know, all of the, uh, you know, I'm a big proponent of coronary artery calcium scans uh, for, you know, for detecting early, you know, heart disease. Uh, but really before, you know, talking with you, I never, you know, you never really bother to look at, you know, you get those cuts into the upper abdomen and you can see the visceral fat, you can see the pericardial fat, um, you know, and uh, I, like you, you know, I, I think you had commented on social media at some point, uh, you know, has anyone like ever seen a radiologist comment on the amount of visceral fat on all of these scans they sit there reading all day? And I think there was a discussion at one point about, you know, one of the radiologists chimed in and just said, well, everyone has it. So why bother commenting on it? Uh, but it's amazing yeah. how we how we develop these blind spots in medicine. Um, and, uh, you know, I think back to my days, you know, the the first part of my training uh, to become a cardiac surgeon, you know, I, w- I went through general surgery training. And for five years, I was in lots of people's bellies. And, you know, you'd be moving this fat out of the, out of the way and you'd be digging through it, but you never really thought about, you know, why is it here and what does it mean? Yeah, so I'll tell you a really interesting experience I just had on 
visceral fat with CT scan. So, you know, think about how many CT abdominal scans have been done in our country or done on a daily basis. So I'm next to a guy who's presenting to a physician, 79 years old, Phil, this guy's still practicing. He reads his own CTs and uh, there's a guy, a cute cute belly pain showing up and uh, he he gets appropriately gets a CT scan and I watched my colleague, my learned 79-year-old colleague, diagnosed with of cancer, and he shows it to me. And I'm like, I would have missed that. <laughs> I would not have picked, it, picked that up. But I, say, I said to him, I know why he's got that pancreatic cancer, because look at all the visceral fat he has in there. And uh, so this, this colleague who has been reading CTs for uh, 38 years, he told me, he's, he's looking like this at the scan. Where's the visceral fat. I said, well, all that black stuff. And so he looks again and he goes, what black stuff you're going to have to show me. And I said, it's all this. So let me just, let me show, look at, look at all that black stuff. Okay. So that, that page, that, that physician who's reading it for 38 years had been looking past all that black stuff. Okay. So but this guy was so smart. He looked. Oh, we recorded. Sean, we lost your audio there very briefly. You said oh, okay. he, was so, so, he was so smart. And then we lost. your yeah. audio. So he was so smart that he looked at that and had this epiphany where he realized, you know, that he had been looking past all this visceral fat. And so he turned to me. And he goes, without hesitation, it was an incredible moment. Does this mean that we should probably be following visceral fat instead of cholesterol? And I'm like, wow, that is amazing. This guy put it together in this one scan so quickly. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a uh, thing that's just ignored by people. You know, it's interesting to do searches. I thought I thought that, you know, they're just cutting through it. You know, but there nobody's picking up on this. And the the other interesting marker that, that you'll probably feel good about this too, if you've blown past visceral fat, is corresponding visceral fat now, Phil, are these fatty uh infiltrates of these fatty streaks within the skeletal muscle. I wanted and to ask you about that. They're associated now with sarcopenia. So muscles really you know, atrophy of muscles and diapenia where the muscles are becoming weaker. These fatty streaks now are being deposited within the musculature uh, in the uh, of skeletal muscle. So uh, I asked my my best friend is an orthopedic surgeon. So I'm <laughs> I'm like, hey, I'm picking up with whenever there's visceral fat, there are these fat streaks. Get rid of visceral fat, and these fat streaks go away, and and the the muscles start looking better. They start performing better. They get stronger. And I said, you guys tracking this? And he goes. Well, there is a study where the shoulder, he's Cuban, fatty infiltrates within this, the muscles around the shoulder suggest to the degree that they're present, bad outcome for surgery to do a rotator cuff repair, wow. some specialized thing. So I'm like, well, that's all over the body. I mean, you guys, do you like hesitate and working on a knee or something else because these fatty infiltrates in the and if nobody else used it. They only just picked up on that one air. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> it's all over the body and you only concentrate in the, 
the shoulder. So, but, you know, we're not exposed to a medical school. Uh, I'll confess we weren't tracking it really in our, for the National Science Foundation. We were looking at at visceral fat, but, you know, as we were doing these scans for professional football players, we'd scan their legs. They didn't have these fatty infiltrates, but then we'd follow these older people. I had a lot of visceral fat and they had these fatty infiltrates. And so towards the end of our, our, our study, um, we, we, we realized that this is another important marker. And I think what's happening just to bring this back to Dr. Avedia's work um, and, and trying to avoid getting a cabbage is I think those fatty infiltrates are related and associated with visceral fat. The same process that causes this uh, visceral fat probably causes these fatty infiltrates in the skeletal muscle, but also the smooth muscle of the vascular. Uh, smooth muscle is, and I, yeah, please, please that, define because not a medical professional here. Yeah. So the smooth muscle is the second body of muscle. And I tell my clients, you know, before you work on skeletal muscle, try okay, to get real healthy. quick, real quick, for those who are not watching, our 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 doctor here just did a gun show for us. All right, carry on. <laughs> yeah. So your skeletal muscle are your muscles that you think of when you hear muscle, right? But probably your more important muscles for your health. Uh, with the exception of your heart, right? Your myocardium is probably the most important muscle. Go without that one, you're dead. I mean, there would be no arguments with Dr. Vedi about that. But the muscles, there are muscles that line your cardiovascular, your arteries, your veins, your capillaries, and they in fact take up the largest amount of of space, the tissue in those vasculature, and they're vulnerable to disease too. And so these fatty infiltrates. I can't tell you for certain yet I have to do histopathology, but I'm guessing that where Phil and I to go back to our days of gross anatomy, histology and do some fresh frozen specimens off, you know, some uh, uh, cuts through some vasculature, we would be able to histologically through a microscope detect some of these depositions of fat. And I think that is, in fact, the process that we refer to as hardening of the arteries. So is fat in this uh, smooth muscle? Yes. So these okay. smooth muscles line your arteries and they have a different function. They're not volitional. So they're, you know, you can contract voluntarily your skeletal muscle, right. but your smooth muscle are, are more automatic. They kind of happen on their own. They're also in your gastrointestinal tract of your, your, your small intestines, large intestines your glands. So all of the autom- autonomic kind of things that happen naturally, auto- automatically, um, do so through smooth muscle. And so you have skeletal muscle and smooth muscle vulnerable to this inflammatory process, which, you know, over a period of time is degraded. And so as a consequence of getting rid of, and, and I, I don't know if it's directly causal by visceral fat or correcting the lifestyle that causes visceral fat also corrects um, the negative effects on smooth muscle. And, and so you see an improvement in the vascular performance. So I have these visible pulses now that popped up all over my body. My belly now pops up. When I lay down, you can see blood coursing through my aorta through the biomechanical forces involved and this bolus of blood bulging down my, my aorta, 
uh, that to probably a, a trained, conventionally trained physician, dude's got a triple A right there. <laughs> Look at that. That's got to be an abdominal aortic aneurysm present in in uh, in in Sean's uh, abdomen. So I frequently will show. I'll drop on on a on a patient table, pull up my shirt, and show this to my patients to try to visualize get them to realize now look at your abdomen it's flat um, look at your your arteries in your body you don't have them uh, but if you get rid of these poor lifestyle changes you'll start having visible um, manifestation you, you'll see your blood flowing better and uh, it's very exciting to see um, and to live through that experience because with improved perfusion uh, your body gets healthier and the quality of your life improves dramatically now you get blood flow better to the joints, uh, to the back, everything, you know, to the brain, to the uh, cerebral cortex. Uh, so my, my memory has never been better. I just, uh, I, I, I literally walk around and think people are being freaking ripped off because I have been given, I feel like 30 years back in my life in terms of quality of enjoyment that I get to have by the addition, additional improvement in health. And I see these other people that are walking around. They just, you could have a conversation and they'd look like this. They just don't believe it. They, everything tells them otherwise. Yeah. So but for podcasts like yours um, and social media, where this, this is more regularly and persuasively brought up authentically and sincerely, I don't know how else it would other get, otherwise get out to people to be aware of. I want to ask you to speak to the non-medical professionals, specifically to business professionals right now who understand a key performance indicator. These guys who run a business, they've got a, a dashboard that has 12 or 18 or 24 um, uh, gauges and dials and pie charts and bar charts on it that they can just at a glance can instantly assess the health of their business. Talk to those people because I think they're going to understand this approach. Yeah. So it's a great, uh, it's a great question. So what happens to business people that see levels, you know, CEO, CFO, COOs running these companies that they're armed with KPI and KPI or key performance indicators they get tweaked to the extent that you measure the correct KPI. And then you embark on the correct interventions and strategies to optimize that KPI. You can literally drive that company towards a more favorable outcome or worse outcome, depending on your decisions making. So companies live and die on the basis of KPI. And so a really good C-level and a CEO uh, really has finesse with KPI. Now, what I think is needed, what I try to espouse, and what I do with my own patients now, clients that I work with, is that I try to give them the very best uh, KPI for their body, okay? Their experience to date with conventional physicians is that their KPI is more like cholesterol, laboratory reports, and are things that drive revenue attached to the healthcare system and that particular practice, rather than really true, truly optimize that biological collection of tissue 
that's in front of them. So I changed it a little bit from calling it KPI to KBI, key biological indicators. And then I get into fatty infiltrates and smooth muscle, visceral fat within the abdomen. And I look at facial inflammation in people and telangiectasias, changes in the skin. And I give those people a task to track all those things by photograph. And then I give them the strategies to change them. So I'm essentially turning them into CEOs of their own corporation, their own body, giving them the key biological indi indicators to, to follow. And if there's any business guys out there that run companies or men or women that run companies and you do KPI, let me ask you something. You know how you run your company and it turns on the validity of that KPI. Why do you let doctors get away with crappy KPI for your health? Why do you let them get away with this? And so that's the question, you know, I think we, Dr. Ovedi and I should be asking our colleagues, why do you guys do that? You know, I, I get that it's designed to generate revenue for the healthcare system, but have we got ourselves so removed from the improvement and treatment and, and the best interests, health interests of, uh, of patients that we are now exclusively just looking at CPT coding and what's attached to, you know, uh, healthcare authorizations and, and uh, you know, the healthcare's big pharma, big medicine, big healthcare, big insurance, that we no longer are even paying attention to the fact that the longer this patient remains in our practice, the worse off they are. Uh, we wouldn't tolerate that in corporate America. Why do we tolerate it in the largest part of our economy, which is healthcare, applied to individuals where they're just falling? apart. So I think what this means is that we see the potential for transformational uh, change in the future, a disruption from somebody probably similar to what Sammy Erkinen is, is now doing with um, management diabetes for large self-insured companies. Uh, Sammy Erkinen started the uh, truly a website app, you know, that uh, Zillow now owns. And uh, he's now running that company. It was Dr. Sarah Hallberg, who recently just passed away. What was her yeah. company, Phil? Uh, Verda. Verda. Yeah, Health. Verda Health. So Verda Health is taking care of diabetics, you know, for large self-insured companies. Uh, I don't know exactly their model, but basically it's something along the lines, I think, where they take care of the diabetics for a portion of the cost of savings to those companies. Um, I don't. I don't know the Sammy necessarily wants to get out. You, you know, exactly what that's interesting. But I'm. I, I'm a. When I'm not hosting a podcast, uh, I'm a marketing consultant, and my particular, the group of guys we work with, um, we operate on a performance model. Most marketing organizations charge a flat fee to do the marketing. We don't. We charge, however much money we make you we get a percentage of that. Where so were I, you when, 10 we'll, years ago when I we'll had talk this afterwards. business? I was always looking for you. There, almost nobody does that, Jack. That's incredible. This, uh, it's not about me. I, I want to go back to that, that medical model there of we will treat your, we will take care of your employees who are diabetics for a percentage of the amount of money we save you in healthcare. That's a brilliant model. Yeah, and it, it aligns yeah. incentives. 
Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, you know, as, as Sean was saying, you know, one of the central problems in the healthcare system is that the incentives are misaligned and there is no incentive to keep people healthy. Uh, and, uh, you know, we we have to get around that. Um, and, you know, whether the system does it or whether individuals start doing it for themselves uh, to, you know, to uh, incentivize their own health. And I love I love that term, Sean, that, you know, uh, for people to start tracking their KBIs uh, and really, you know, taking charge of their health, which is one of the the themes that we talk about so much on this show that, you know, we can all wait around for the system to change, but uh, that's probably not going to end well for most of us. So um, we as individuals, we as the individual physicians, and we as the individual, you know, patients uh, need to just take back control of our health and uh, start looking at these actually useful metrics of our health. Um, I'm kind of fascinated, you know, by the external signs of all this and, and you know, being able to correlate, you know, what's going on in the inside to what's going on in the outside and how you mentioned that, you know, the, the medicine men of, of way back, you know, that's what they had. They would look at you and they would know you're healthy or you're not healthy. Uh, and again, we've We've probably lost that ability because when you look all around you, the reality is, is everyone's unhealthy. So uh, we cannot differentiate that anymore. But it's something I've consistently seen. You know, I, I just the number of times that I've, you know, been with a patient and they're like, oh, well, I'm not really losing as much weight as I want to and this and that. But everyone's telling me how great I look. And I'm like, there <laughs> it is, you know. That's the sign. Uh, we just need a better way to quantify that, I guess. Wow. Yeah. Well, this it was interesting. Just uh, yesterday, I was I did a a couple of days ago. Actually, I did a a post on my Instagram about how, how Native Americans would hunt, and it's fascinating to me that we're the only species for four million years that would hunt the best animal in a tribe. It, you know, rather, the lions rather than the weakest. They go for the heifer, the one sick or dragging its leg, you know, but we have cerebral cortex, you know, that allowed us to think and identify signs on which animal in the herd was the best one to hunt because they'd have the highest nutrient value and the mess, the best microbes on their hide that we would value for the microbiome. Now we didn't understand germs and the microbiome, but we knew that the best animal, the best fur that made you, gave you secret, you know, we laughed at these people that had secret powers in the, in the hide. They did. It was the microbes. The lifestyle con conferred, you know, kept all along in that skin and the hair that would be conferred upon the recipient hunter. And so we would select the best when all the other animal species only hunt the easiest. And so... We okay. knew how to select. We, we've it just the way opened the an entirely new chapter here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. oh my yeah. lord! Part two. We've yeah uh, we've yeah, we, running, yeah we've had a running discussion how you know the next season of this podcast is going to be be bringing everyone on for part twos because we always get to these fascinating nuggets towards the end of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. It really yeah. is. I mean, the best for the last. So part two. Yeah, have me come back. And I will be glad to go into that because it it really, truly is uh, 
fantastically interesting. And it's almost like people aren't quite ready for it. You kind of have to bait them along. And so I haven't got into it yet in my own uh, Instagram and Twitter accounts, but you'll, you'll see me launch on it shortly, Phil. Oh man, this is good. Uh, Phil, if you got any other questions you want to ask for this podcast? No, I think, I think this is a great place to uh, wrap it up. Uh, And just Sean, let, uh, let everyone know how they can uh, connect with you, where the best places to find you are. uh, And uh, for people who might be interested in working with you. Yeah. So on uh, Instagram, you can find me, uh, put out lots of data, uh, information, postings on how to optimize your health at uh, just at D-R-S-E-A-N-O-M-A-R-A at Dr. Sean O'Mara. And the same thing for Twitter and uh, Dr. Sean O'Mara with an apostrophe for YouTube. And then I have a website. Um, just www.drseanomara. I look for clients that are highly motivated, alphas. I got lots of people coming to me that, that want to work with me. I only work with people that are super motivated or really want to optimize their health because I study them and I'm writing a book about it and I don't have time <laughs> to waste on people that are like, oh, I don't think I want to give up that or I was, you know, I just don't really want to work that hard. Or I don't want to sprint. And, you know, I don't have time for that. We're, we're about this business of reversing chronic disease. So wow. uh, yeah, if you're that kind of motivated person, you want to be as health, the healthiest person you possibly be. I might be worth worthwhile for you to give me a call and we'll, we'll talk. That's fantastic. Um, but you've got about, I counted at least three phrases that you use in this podcast that would that would be fantastic titles for your book um <laughs> seriously just great, well you great share stuff. them with me Jack. i'm terribly impressed i've never heard of a marketing guy one time and i probably walk around i'm the, your ideal client walk around every day thinking we need to get more professionals out there that say i want to be compensated based on performance because that I, I just almost never see that in marketing. I never have, not almost. Well, that's because that's because there's so that. much bad marketing out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that right away when you said that, uh, I get it. Because who else would offer that except for somebody that had confidence in their expertise? Yeah. And that would I, I can't tell you how many hundreds of thousands of dollars I threw at marketing firms that got nowhere. <laughs> And, and nobody would guarantee me. And I would ask them, but nobody would do it. And so I had I found out about you, I'd have given you my hundreds of thousands of dollars, Jack. Uh, but anyway. And we'd have turned it into tens of millions. <laughs> now, yeah, now I'm a little researcher. I got no I got no money. But right. uh, yeah, maybe down down the road, uh, if I can figure out a for-profit motive uh, for businesses, I'm going to use you, Jack, to figure out how we, how we get other providers truly um, compensated through performance and uh, uh, yeah. And, and teach them how to reverse disease and get compensated for that. So well, I that's, know that's the future of healthcare. I think. I know there are a lot of healthcare professionals out there who are sick of the way the system they're stuck inside works. And would, I would be willing to bet would gladly trade their golden handcuffs for a model that allowed them to be paid for paid for for performance, um, it's a it's such an honor to get to talk to you. 
Uh, all right. Well, we're definitely going to have you back on. I wanted to, I'm, I've got a couple of things written down that we didn't get to that I want to ask you about. So that'll be for part two. Um, okay, great. Anything else, Phil? I think that will wrap it up for this week. We've we've wowed the people. We, we, we can't uh, overwhelm them too much. All right. Well, let's call it a wrap then. Uh, for Dr. Phil Ovedi, I'm Jack Heald, and uh, this has been Dr. Sean O'Meara. It's the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast. Follow Dr. Ovedi on Twitter at iFixHearts. His website is OvediaHeartHealth.com, and you can take a metabolic health quiz at iFixHearts.co. And we'll talk to you next time. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Avadia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.